Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we thank you very, very much for joining us. We appreciate your time in doing so. As you know, these podcasts are designed to look at some of the issues that impact our generation and uh, our families, uh, especially in light of the longevity revolution. We appreciate your feedback and comments. So you can send them to me at Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. And we are pleased to remind you that we welcome as our sponsor for these podcasts, the Rothkoff Elder Law Firm, which provides a full range of assistance to individuals and families in the area of elder law. You can connect with them at RothkoffLaw.com or their phone number at 877-475-1101. And we are very pleased to welcome to uh, Seekers of Meaning, Rabbi Andrew Kahn. the editor and participant of this very, very important new book, The Sacred Earth, The Sacred Earth, um, subtitled Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet. And as you can see, it's thick, lots of perspectives on our planet. So first of all, um, Rabbi Khan, welcome. Welcome to Seekers of Meaning. It's very, very nice to see you coming to us from the far away uh, distance of uh, New York City. So. Um, Hello from Philadelphia. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, um, an honor and a pleasure to be on, especially given the uh, the names that have come before me on this podcast and TV show. I uh, oh, feel definitely honored to uh, be one of those names now. Well, you, you, you've done a tremendous job. It's a very, very important book. Uh, let me let me start off by really saying, first of all, congratulations. Thank uh, the you. book is published by the CCAR Press. That's uh, Available through the press, the CCR Press, bookstores, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And for those of you who, you know, are now beginning to plan next year's programming, uh, 23, 24, synagogue program, organizational program, your Hadassah, your men's club, whatever, 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 take a look at this book because um, the discussions and the essays around the Jewish perspectives around the environment are very, very crucial and could not be more timely. Uh, given everything that's happening. So, um, this is very, very worthwhile to investigate this and, and bring to, um, your organization or your congregation. So, um, Andrew, the sacred earth, you begin the, the conversation in the book by quoting this very, very lovely midrash, uh, from, uh, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which sort of like with Adam, um, sort of like sets the tone for the book. Could you walk us through that midrash and, and uh, why you chose to really begin the whole conversation with that? The, the, the primary reason I chose to begin the whole conversation with that midrash is that it actually um, fully anthropomorphizes, per- personifies the earth. The earth is a character in the midrash. Um, and the earth, primarily because of Hebrew grammar, um, and the way in which the word for earth is feminine in Hebrew is personified as feminine. Um, and one of the things that really, um, stood out to me about this project was the need to shift our relationship as a people to the earth and to dig deep back into earlier roots in our tradition as to how our ancestors did, um, particularly before modernity. So in this Midrash, God is speaking to the earth um, as God creates Adam. 
and the earth kind of panics saying there is no way that I can support what is going to come from this new creation of yours, this new species, the human species. And I can't be wholly responsible for um, both dealing with feeding them and dealing with the waste they're going to create, um, which to me, when I first read this Midrash, was shocking that this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago because it speaks so directly to today. Um, and ultimately what God says is that, um, the three of us are going to enter into a pact, a covenant, a breach together in that I, God, will support, um, Adam, humanity during the nighttime hours. They will come to me, um, which I, I talk about in this essay about the way in which dreams give us new ways to engage in the world and in the earth. Um, and that you, the earth will support Adam, the human species, during the day. And that that conjunction um, and that relationship in which Adam, humanity, is the linkage between heaven, literally God, and earth, um, it was very important for me to try to articulate why I wanted to do this project at all. Um, and the rest of the introduction really kind of goes into explaining that. I think. So this covenant, this covenant from our tradition, um, the land, and there's text on this. Give us the, the basic sort of like introduction 101, our relationship to the land. It's, it's not ours to do with what we want, even though there's text saying, you know, you have power and dominion, you can rule. But really, what, what's the story here? Great. Yeah. So, um, last week's Torah portion is actually quite relevant to this. And that the um, the laws around Shemitah or uh, the the land needing to lay fallow every seven years um, right. is highlighted in the, the Torah portion last week. Um, and so, ultimately, in in more ancient forms of Judaism, the the earth and all within it belong to God, and we, as humanity, are um, basically. Um, sojourners upon the land, no matter where we are. Um, and God, according to, um, and this is in some of the other essays in the book as well, God doled out the land to all the peoples of the earth, um, giving each people kind of a place. And then as time went on, people mixed and, mixed and had different relationships to the places um, they lived on. But God is in the breach between humanity and the earth, and particularly the Jewish people on the earth, giving us directions as to how we're supposed to relate to the earth and what our responsibilities are therein. Um, there is another midrash that I think is really powerful, especially in conjunction with the one I use in my introduction. Um, I believe it's in Shir Hashirim Rabbah, in which God ultimately tells Adam, um, you are responsible for making sure that the land, the earth itself, remains habitable because there is not another one coming. This is all you got. So not only are you um, do you have to, through the work, through the sweat of your brow, eke out a living on this land, but you also have to make sure that your eking out a living on this land does not despoil the land for um, the generations to come. And so that's the tension going on in Judaism, and that human life is um, extremely important in this covenant um, of prime importance throughout Jewish text, 
but not to the exception of the importance of the rest of life. We are part of this larger pattern, this larger interweaving web of life that we, as those who are created to um, tend and to guard, which is a different translation than the King James provides for what God commands Adam to do, um, not only have to provide for ourselves, but have to make space for uh, the rest of life to, to continue as well. So and, and, and I, I just expl- um, explore with you a little bit. We're part of, and this is something that I think we don't spend enough time teaching. We're, we're part of nature, aren't we? We are Correct. part of nature. Yeah. And, and yeah. as much, as such, we have that responsibility. We're not above nature, beyond nature. We're, we're part of it. We live, we are born, we live, we die. And just like everything else, just like right. everything else. And the, the intergenerational type of stuff, there's this uh, essay by one of the professors at HUC, uh, our seminary and other seminaries, um, Dr. Levine, who basically says, um, and this is important for those of us who are grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, once I became a grandparent, I became more aware of the importance of these environmental issues, obviously, because we asked our question all the time as grandparents. Well, what a, what kind of world, what kind of a planet are we leaving to our children and our grandchildren? What are we giving them to take care of? And I think that intergenerational thing comes through with a variety of the different essays. But it's also, isn't it not um, at one of the foundation points of this whole conversation within the tradition about our responsibility to to take care of this place? Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a teaching that comes out of Native American traditions about thinking um, seven generations down the line as to how your behavior now is going to affect those who are coming. Um, and that gets cited quite often by rabbis, but we have our own that doesn't get cited as much, um, which is this wonderful um, Agadah in the Talmud about um, a man named Choni the Circle Maker, who was a, a famous right. miracle worker early on, um, like slightly before really the rabbinic Jewish period. And um, he is kind of wandering around and sees a very, very elderly man planting a carob tree. And at this time, it was well known that carob trees aren't, don't give fruit for a very, very long time. Um, and so he said to this man, why are you planting these trees? You're never going to see the fruit of them. And the man says to him, well, when I was born, there were carob trees planted here, and I was able to eat the fruit of them myself. So now I plant these for the generations to come. And Honey kind of laughs it off. Um, but then he falls into a Rumpelstiltskin-like slumber and sleeps for 70 years and awakens to find a man that looks very much like the man he saw planting the carob tree, harvesting carob. And he asked the man, are you the person who planted these trees? And the man says, no, my grandfather. Um, and the story unfolds further, than, and I'm not going to go any further than that. But underlying that um, little fable is the idea that even the wisest people, um, and Honey himself is, uh, is very much an individualist throughout his stories, and it's really everything's kind of all about Honey all the time. Um, but the story is coming to teach us that even someone who had an amazing relationship with God that he could work miracles like Honey could, 
needed to learn and needed to respect the idea that his behaviors in his day and age weren't just about him and weren't just about his day and age, but needed to be considered 70 years out. Um, and that was another, that's another angle that, um, really led me to want to take this project on, um, as, as a, a younger rabbi. What was, I mean, did you, what drew you to this though? I mean, uh, you just said this, those stories, but was there a, an aha moment, uh, you know, on the cross Bronx expressway that, yeah. that got you saying, you know, this is something that I've really, it's, it stirs a passion in with me and I want to study it and collect because you have a, a, a wealth of very, very powerful essays from a very, very large cross section of intergenerationally, you know, uh, in, in the book, which is why it's very important to have this book discussed in congregations. What was, was there some aha moment? Um, it's a great question because like there's a number of moments I could claim were the aha moment. Um, but frankly, the aha moment was, um, rabbi here, a person asking me to do it. Um, oh, but that came from, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, yeah, it's a, it's a big aha moment. Um, but there were many moments along the way. I mean, first of all, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, and primarily in the nineties. And I'm sure most of our listeners remember that environmentalism really started taking off in the 90s. There was a lot of like ads on TV. There were, you know, environmentalist superhero cartoons when I was growing up. So I grew up in, a, in both a place and a time that was very focused on environmentalism. So to me, it's something that is that just comes naturally. Um, but as I was learning at HUC and, and coming into what my rabbinate was going to be, um, social justice was a, a, a big issue for me. And there are just endless social justice issues that one can take on, right? Um, one that has always spoken very strongly to me as well is um, racial justice and gender justice and so many things that we need to address, um, not just as like a people, as the Jewish people, but as like a, a race, as humanity, um, as a species. And um, I think as I was continuing to learn and um, put these pieces together, I kind of realized that environmentalism and environmental justice actually does link all of these things together because ultimately it's about how we exist on the planet and how we exist together on the planet. And because of the ways in which the structures that we exist in now, and particularly in America, um, unfold, the effects of climate change and of environmental degradation in general are uneven, right? Communities who are already impoverished, which also very frequently fall along racial lines, um, are the ones that take the brunt of it. And that's not just true in America, that's true worldwide. All over the world, right. So that brings in both racial and economic justice into the fold of what environmental justice is about. And so to me, focusing on the environment actually goes more deeply into the root causes of some of the other issues that um, are particularly pertinent today. Um, and maybe even the biggest issue, which is what led us to this place in particular, which is the um, Enlightenment modern form of understanding humanity's relationship to the earth. Um, which basically goes back to Francis Bacon 
um, as one of the prime movers of uh, the Industrial Revolution and phrasing our relationship to the earth as a in, in a very patriarchal i'm not gonna i'm not gonna use the actual phrasing because it's, it's very violent um it but it comes from a very patriarchal violent and colonialist perspective right right that, right. We, that we are to not only um make use of the earth for our own good but we need to dominate and subjugate the earth and that is the underlying ethos behind our post or our our modern and post enlightenment um, way of being in the world that we need to address. And one of the things that I think is so important about this book and about the um, Jewish voice in this conversation is that the vast majority of the sec the texts that we hold as most sacred are pre modern. And when, although our movement, the reform movement really did take a whole lot from the enlightenment and based itself in, um, modern philosophy, um, it, the reform movement, reform is also a verb, right? And so we are now at a point where we need to be reaching back to our pre-modern, um, thinking to help us understand what to pull forward into the post-modern era as we renegotiate our relationship to the earth and each other. Uh, for a sustainable and, um, you know, frankly, realistic future for all people. Well, the, the, the social justice, political, social implications of every essay in this book, um, you know, that's why it's important to have these conversations around the book and, and some of these essays, because it, it, it's not theoretical. Right. The issues as, uh, the issues, as you know, are going to Im they impact us every day. Mm -hmm. And it's much more than just no more plastic bags at the supermarket. Yeah. It's really an ethos. Yep. But I want to, that it's very interesting. You start the, I think the first essay in the book, um, by, uh, Hava, uh, Hava, uh, Samuelson from Arizona State University, um, has this line in it, which I need to have you unpack because I, 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 I'm, I'm very interested if you ever get any reaction from this paragraph when she's talking about, you know, the whole issue of environmentalism. She says, modern, I quote, modern techno science and modern capitalism have yielded the echo crisis because humanity has banished God from its self understanding, replacing it with its own Promethean self, unquote. That kind of like <laughs> lays it right out. I mean, there's <laughs> like, okay, it's yeah. the modern uh, industrial capitalistic, whatever complex, et cetera, that's caused this. Um, what's your take on, I mean, you know, this, she really like pulls back the curtain, doesn't she? Yeah. And says, yeah. look, we've created, this is, we, we've done this. We've done this. Yeah. And um, so there's there's so many angles to take on that. Thank you. That's a great question, and that's why I started. Like that's why I wanted that to be the first essay of the book. Is she you know, really you, just you did breaks, a good job with that. breaks down where we are today in relation to the environment, how we got there, and um, perhaps doesn't provide many solutions, but the uh, the the many other essays to come gives many different ways to um, address this moment that we're in. Um, and so, I mean, I. 
I don't think that what she said, although as, as you're saying it, I, I understand how it could be and would be read and heard as controversial, but it is just accurate and true. Um, this based in the history of where we've come from and the moment we're in, these are just the realities that we're dealing with. And in order to help ourselves move on to a new future that perhaps, um, brings us in different relationship to the earth and, and to God by the nature of completely re, um, rejiggering our, uh, perspective. Um, we have to face that reality, which I think is maybe one of the hardest things is to look directly at how we're living, how we're being, um, how the systems that we have erected to allow us to live in the way that we are living and to accept that even if you recycle every day and don't use plastic bags and are careful about your water and turn off the lights when you leave the room, you are still implicated in this insofar as you're a participant in modern society. That doesn't mean that we're all bad people. This is true of me too, right? Like, Every one of us is implicated in this insofar as we live in the society. And one of the things that I think we struggle with because as another angle of modern thought is the need for moral purity and the idea that if we are not morally pure, we are therefore completely condemnable. And so we have to look away from the things that make us feel as if we are not morally pure. So, um, uh, Dr. Samuelson's essay really just brings that mirror up immediately to us. And then my goal was every essay thereafter to give us ways to be able to sit in that discomfort of recognizing that the way that we're living is not sustainable. We are going to have to probably give up some of what we're doing and some of what we have. It's very, very comfortable. And, um, and that it is a, a process of maturing to understand how we live in the world has effects beyond ourselves that we can't see. And although we aren't individually capable of changing those effects, like if I were to, you know, leave New York City, go live on a sustainable eco farm, no longer buy new technology because, you know, all of this technology we're using right now um, requires this, the, the systems we have in place to pull materials out of the earth that isn't, is ecologically unsustainable. All of that, right? If I were to get rid of all of it, I still wouldn't be making a single change in, um, in, in the future. What really needs to happen is a change in the way that we as a full society understand our relationship to the, to nature, as you were saying, which is to say that we are part of nature and even our technology that we rely upon that, um, that may harm nature by the way that we have to strip nature to build it is part of nature too, because it's part of us. And we need to figure out based on the, um, capacities we have as humans, how to rebalance ourselves in that relationship. And once again, the only way to do that is to face the imbalance that we've created now.
Well, you, you mentioned some of the subsequent essays, and indeed, just a couple of essays down the road from Dr. Samuelson is uh, Dr. Uh, Benstein's essay where he juxtaposes um, dominion and stewardship. And, you know, and the concept of stewardship within our tradition, and we use this in, in the work we do in Jewish sacred aging because there's a whole phenomenon of stewardship about in the rubric of caregiving. But in essence, it's quite similar. I mean, we're, uh, the stewardship of what we started out with, when you started out with, we're given this environment, we're given this planet, we're given this land, not to take, but as, as a lease. And we have to take care of it. It's like we have to take care of our parents and abide by its wishes because. So that's, that's part of this ambiance. But when we come back from after the, a, a, a word from uh, Rothkopf, I, I want to ask you a little bit about, um, bringing this down into the reality of education because everybody's going to, all of our colleagues are going to agree. Oh yes. The environment and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a real disconnect sometimes between that sermon and actually living it. And we'll do that. Uh, we're speaking with Rabbi Andrew Kahn, the editor of the sacred earth, uh, Jewish perspectives on our planet. We'll be right back with Rabbi Khan after this word from our sponsor. We are health care advocates to help navigate the issues associated with the aging process, to access benefits that are available for those individuals. Rothkopf Law Offices helped us with my mother's home. We didn't know that we had to put it in my mother's name in order to save the home. Everything that he said is true. I mean, I've had, we've had so many questions, and it didn't matter when I call. Everybody is always there. In one word, it's been incredible. And the expectations going in, because we didn't know what we were going to be involved with, what the situation, how we were going to deal with any of these items, the expertise, the service, and implementation of the plan has been totally critical to the success that we've experienced. A group who understands how important the care is is paramount. I would highly recommend that anyone look at their website review the information, look at their client experiences. We've been very satisfied with everything from start to finish. We're back with uh, Rabbi Andrew Kahn, the editor of the new CCAR book, CCR Press book, The Sacred Earth, Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet, talking about, right before the break, um, the, the, the overwhelming societal, historical implications of of uh, how we're dealing with the environment. Uh, you know, there are Jewish organizations, I think, like Dayenu, uh, uh, the movements have, you know, taken Sukkot, uh, Tubishvat, turned them into uh, festivals and holidays that touch on the environment. Uh, you know, most several synagogue now will recycle. Many of our families recycle. All of this is good. But, um, how do we how do we bring this back into the religious school classroom? I mean, you're a rabbi in a congregation. How do you how do you make this alive for that fifth grader, the sixth grader, or the or the confirmation class kid in that tenth grader or post confirmation class, so that they really understand this linkage between text, tradition, and saving the planet because they have to live there. Yeah. So I think one piece um, is. Perhaps getting rid of the idea of saving the planet. 
um, the planet is going to continue on with or without us. Um, and so really what we're thinking about is figuring out how to realign um, the way in which we engage with the planet to give the planet a certain level of autonomy and respect. And so um, the I can give a few examples from the book, in fact, um, of ways I think this is this can be most powerful. Um, one um, and the easiest, and probably the one that you'll uh, kind of hear the most frequently from rabbis is turning hiking or going on walks in nature into a sacred practice through mindfulness. Um, there's a, a wonderful essay in uh, in the book by Rabbi uh, Danny Weiner and Rabbi Avi Fine um, about a Shabbat stroll being a sacred practice and a way in which you can connect to nature, see yourself as part of nature through actively engaging in nature as part of Shabbat. Because one of the things that is most powerful about Shabbat is, is disengaging from work, disengaging from the ways in which humanity um, can shape reality and instead just occupying reality as it is. And so simply giving people those opportunities to view their engagement in um, what we would commonly refer to as natural spaces, as something that's sacred and as something that connects them to God, will inherently shift their perspective on where they find God, I think. If someone only goes into a um, man-made building that contains a human-written Torah, and that is the only place they find God, they're going to have a real hard time understanding why um, the environment is important from a Jewish perspective. So by bringing people into um, different environments and helping them connect to the divine in those environments, I think that's one really powerful. Another essay that I think is really, really helpful in this is Rabbi Shoshana Meira Friedman's essay that starts off by talking about how she found um, divine study, Torah study, in learning about the environment around her and learning about nature and plant life around her. And it goes into talking about creating a lulav from local plant life, um, not to replace the traditional lulav or an etrog, but as an addition to, and as a way of showing people how to bring their local environment into their sacred practice, which again, I think is the ultimate goal, right? Is we're readjusting our perspective to rather than be people who um, have to change the environment around us to match what it is that we are attempting to do, learning to see within the environment as it is divinity itself. Um, so her essay is very good, um, for actually tangibly doing something, a, a practice in your synagogue around Sukkot that'll let you and, um, your community connect to your natural environment a little better. Um, and then the one particularly for kids, uh, for the younger generation, I think is most powerful is Rabbi Dean Shapiro's. Um, he frames the, uh, idea of synagogue life as needing a, a fourth leg to um, what it, it, it does now, and which is a gathering place, a place of study, and a place of prayer. And the essay is called Beit Dati. It's a place 
for the future. And he frames this really beautiful call to action within our synagogues about how to actually make our synagogues places that are laboratories for how to live better in the future, both for us and and particularly for the generations that are coming. Um, One of those ways is to give the younger generations a voice. Have a teen on your board who speaks on behalf of their generation and the things that are most pertinent to them in this day and age so that the congregation itself is able to onboard those concerns that the younger folks have. Um, and another is, is to create spaces where they can actually um, brainstorm what they think they will need when they become adults and even elders from this very community and maybe even the building to help think about planning into the future, how that building can reflect a vision for a more integrative and integrated way of being human in nature and being Jewish in nature. Um, and all of these essays actually get pretty deep into talkless of, of what that'll look like and what that can be and give good examples of how these kinds of shifts in just our viewpoint and just our thinking will hopefully um, combine into a, a larger shift. Because at this point, again, yes, it is great to go zero waste. I don't think that we shouldn't be recycling. I don't think that we shouldn't be ceasing to use plastic as much as possible. But those aren't going to be the things that are going to help sustain future generations the most. Really, it's going to be a full ideological shift that starts at a personal and communal level and then eventually we'll have to reach up into some serious activism to get our society to change its regulations and laws to preserve what we have now as much as we can for a future generation to do differently with. So um, we're going to stay away for a little bit from the politics because we're going to start, we could be here then for another year. Uh, um, but I, I want to pick up on something because there's a series of essays scattered throughout the book uh, that talk about something that that we see emerging a lot in in our work in Jewish sacred aging with with our cohort, and that's um, the creation of of a reinterpretation of traditional rituals. So you know you have um, Shefa Gold's essay, you have um, um, uh, that is uh, Sasso's essay where he talks about reinterpretation, reinterpreting the Birkat Hamazon. Um, how, how can rituals, in your opinion, uh, and you've seen the essays in the book, really be a vehicle to help change the culture? Because we started with certain holidays, but, you know, not everybody will come to the Tubishvat Seder. And not everybody is, you know, banging down the, the doors to wave a lulav at Sukkot. Um, <laughs> but the power of ritual can be transformative. Yes. Can be. So talk to me a little bit how you see um, the rearrangement, reinterpretation, or perhaps the creation of new rituals that will focus on this issue of, uh, of the environment. So. I view ritual as, um, as, as kind of a language. And it's a language that transcends time and space, which is really one of the most 
unbelievable things to me about Judaism writ large. The fact that we are still doing rituals that were done thousands of years ago on the opposite side of the planet and still able to derive meaning from them means that there's something deeply human and deeply powerful about the way ritual can speak to us and speaks to us in a different way than verbal language. And so can, I don't think that, hmm, let me start that sentence over. I think that inventing new ritual is extremely helpful. And especially because we have so many demographics of people today in our communities that have historically kind of been ignored from our ritual um, practices. And so, uh, for instance, I know so much of the work you do with sacred aging is about creating rituals for um, life cycle moments that are particular to today that didn't exist a thousand years ago. And we need those and our congregants need those. Our people need those to be able to make meaning of where they are and to um, feel integrated into the community and supported in these new changes that they're undergoing. Um, but the things that I like the most in this book are the um, new lenses with which to look at um, ancient ritual. Um, because I think that when we do that, we're not necessarily um, finding something new. What we're doing is finding something old that we forgot. Um, one of the things that happened a lot in modernity and a lot in the reform movement was the attempt to sweep under the rug anything that felt as if it were, um, th this is a not a great word to use, but it was the word that they used that was seen as primitive. Um, and there were, it, it, and it comes from the time and place when the reform movement began in Europe and Jews having been seen for, um, you know, centuries, perhaps millennia as a more primitive people than Christians. And the goal was to create um, equality for Jews by proving that we are not a primitive people. Um, and that was in some ways a little bit of self-mutilation in order to make ourselves fit into um, the world that was coming to be through modernity. And now it is uh, my opinion that we need to go back and find those things that we cut off and lost and rediscover these aspects of our tradition that um, speak to a new way of being in the wake of the um, inadvertent destruction that modernity caused. Um, I think that Rabbi Sasso's piece on Birkat Hamazon is a perfect example of that. He doesn't say we need to change anything in Birkat Hamazon. He says, actually, if you just read it closely, every time you say Birkat Hamazon, you are connecting to the way in which the earth provides sustenance for you, which goes back to that initial midrash that I started the book with, which our, our ancestors saw that and saw the earth as um, a place that God inhabited and a, a, an entity unto itself that God created for us to be in relationship with. Another essay that does something very similar is uh, Rabbi Devorah Lin's essay about the uh, second paragraph of the Ve'ahavta, which the earlier reformers cut out of the prayer book um, and which has remained outside the prayer book of the reform movement up until um, our most recent um, high holiday prayer book, which added it back in as an option. And 
it's because this was specifically cut out. And they said this very clearly. This is a primitive way of looking at the world. The idea that our behaviors will somehow affect the ability for the world to bring forth sustenance from us in a direct way is obviously incorrect, according to our um, ancestors from a couple hundred years ago. Um, God doesn't behave this way. And now we know from our ongoing plunge into ecology and environmentalism that in fact, the as a side effect of some of the ways that we have behaved unethically uh, towards our earth, it will no longer bring forth sustenance in the way that um, it once did. And so what we can do by looking back at traditions and rituals that we perhaps cast off is find new ways to link ourselves more deeply to our ancestors that had a very, very different relationship to the earth that can provide us wisdom for how to re-engage and maybe rearrange our current um, relationship to the earth because ritual does speak beyond time and place. Um, I think that answered your question. Yes. So, um, I mean, it's a very good way to bring this conversation to a close because what we're really doing in the sense of what you're, you're saying is in our attempt to deal with this contemporary issue of the environment, we'll do what we've always done. We'll research, go back into our tradition, the, the, the unbelievable reservoir of our own text and tradition. Let it speak to us. Let it speak to us in light of the contemporary world in which we live in and let it live again. And I think that's one of the great messages of the book. Uh, it's one of the great messages that we can continue to teach our people, uh, because in essence, um, we still have to figure out ways to get this message down into the religious school, the adult education classes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because we're living this every day, whether we're living in the middle of Manhattan or uh, in the fields of Kansas or wherever, or in the Pacific Northwest, which is a beautiful part of the country. Uh, Rabbi Andrew Kahn, the editor of the CCAR, new CCAR press book, The Sacred Earth, Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet. Um, Andrew, thank you very, very much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank um, you. Uh, very well done. And again, to our colleagues out there, uh, get a hold of this book. It's a very, very good tool for education, both youth education, adult education, lots of good stuff in there. Um, so thank you again, Andrew. Stay safe. Thanks. Have a good summer and stay healthy. Yeah, okay? you too. Thanks so much. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. Our pleasure. And to all of you, thank you once again for joining us on today's edition of uh, Secrets of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. We thank you for your time. If you'd like again to contact us, just email me, rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help support these podcasts and our work, Go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, click on the donate button, just follow the prompts, real, real easy. And we're going to thank again our sponsor for these podcasts, uh, the Rothkoff Elder Care Law Firm, located here in eastern Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey, but available to all of you for consultations, etc. You can reach them at rothkofflaw.com or their 877 number, 877-8475-1101. Secrets of Meaning 
is produced through the facilities of the Lubetkin Media Companies here in Southern New Jersey. And again, a thank you to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. To all of you, thank you very, very much again for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. And until we meet again on the next edition of Seekers of Meaning, stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy. And most of all, be kind to one another. Shalom.